Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Have you ever noticed how identity and actions seem to uh, kind of be inseparably connected? They just kind of go together, identity, actions. From the earliest days of our childhood, our actions are linked to our identity. It's kind of interesting. So just for an example, um, 18-year-old Joe has gone through 12 of the toughest weeks of anyone's life, certainly his life, in Marine Boot Camp, Marine Corps Boot Camp. And during the last week, they are forced to crawl under the rolls of barbed wire and with live machine gun ammunition over their heads, and he begins to sweat. His hands dig into the dirt that he's been crawling on as panic sweeps over him. And then a fellow Marine crawls up next to him and <laughs> says, Get a hold of yourself, Joe. You're a Marine. Act like it. Throughout life. Throughout our lives, from beginning to end, our identity is linked to our actions. Who we are affects how we act. This is the basic principle of life to which Paul appeals in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, which is where we are today. We've been going, those of you who are first time here today, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We are now in chapter 4. And this is where Paul is coming from when he makes the statement that he makes in this very first verse. Now, it's based on this. As we've covered the first three chapters, it could be summed up with Paul saying to us in those first three chapters, you are a child of God. Now, here in chapter 4, he is saying, so act like it. <laughs> Okay, that's, that's where we're at here. So act like one throughout the rest of the book. He spells out for us in specific detail how we are to act like one, how we are to act as far as being children of God. From chapter 4 on, the focus changes from the theological, the doctrinal things that he'd been talking about in the first three chapters, and it goes to practical, from theological to practical. Paul has explained to his readers God's great mystery and plan for his church. And he has prayed an awe-inspiring prayer that they might know all of Christ's overwhelming, amazing power, love, and grace, and, and all of his blessings. And so the remainder of the letter contains Paul's plea to live out that grace and unity that the believers have received as we have received in Christ, as being those who are in Christ. So first of all, we notice that Paul instructs us that we're to walk in a manner that honors, honors him, of course. Look at that first verse. It says, as a prisoner of for the Lord then, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling 
that you have received. Now, I want you to know this Greek word that shows up here as live can also be translated as walk. They're interchangeable. Live, walk, obviously they mean the same thing. So, for example, in the New King James Version, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so Paul begins this second half of his letter launching into the practical aspects of our life in Christ as he refers to the doctrinal foundation that he laid out for us in chapters 1 through 3. In other words, before telling us how we are to walk, he reminds us that we've got to be sure that we must understand where we sit. I like that, don't you? Before we can really understand about the walk, we got to remember where we're seated in Christ. That's what he's talking about. And Paul covered that back in chapter 2, verse 6. We've looked at that already, but here's what that verse says. And God raised us up. We needed to be raised up, right? Dead in our sin. So God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're seated. Our Christian walk, then, is not something that we do, try to earn God's favor or gain His love. No. Rather, it is a response to how He does love us, what He's done for us, and how good He has already been to us. We love Him, the Apostle John tells us, because He first loved us. You see, He is the initiator. We are the responders, amen? The fact that Paul is a prisoner for the Lord lends weight to the fact that we should also become prisoners of our Lord. Paul actually was in prison in Rome as we presence. In prison really does bear for us a double meaning. In other words, he would have considered himself a prisoner of the Lord, whether or not he was actually in prison. The point is, he laid down his life to follow Christ, and he is calling us as his followers to do the same. Now, let me just kind of state here the obvious. It's when we want to hang on to our own will, and we want to do our own thing, and we reject His Word and His calling and His leading on our lives and thinking that we've got a better idea, that we've got a better plan, that we like our way better than His, just doesn't work. And so because of that, we think, oh man, be a prisoner of the Lord? That sounds terrible, when really it's the reverse. The best thing we could ever do, a decision we would never, ever regret, because it is then that we get to know real peace, true joy, abundant life that is found only in Him. May I dare say that the most, I think, in my opinion, the most miserable, unhappy people on the planet are those who cannot get themselves out of the way. You see, without chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6 would lead only to frustration, legalism, and even rebellion. 
That's why Paul uses the word then when he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then. It could, that word then could also be translated as therefore. Like live and walk, then and therefore, same Greek word, they mean the same thing. So in other words, then in light of all that you have, therefore in light of all that you have, in light of all that's been done, therefore in light of all that you are in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to us, he's encouraging us, live a life, walk a walk that is worthy of your calling. And that calling came from where? From our King, our God and Savior. Live a life, walk a walk, worthy of your calling in a manner that honors our King. Amen? So Paul urges them, as he urges us this morning, to walk. What a great word that really is when you stop and think about it. It says it all. Since it refers to a person's conduct and their lifestyle. I like it that Paul did not say fly. He didn't say sprint. He didn't say run. He didn't even say charge. He just said walk. Almost sounds manageable, doesn't it? Just put one foot in front of the other. Small ones if you have to. Big ones if you can. Walk in the right way. Walk in the right direction. Walk with the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you as a follower of Christ. But walk in a manner that honors Him. That being the priority of our lives. So what does this actually look like? Well, for the next few verses, Paul paints a very clear picture of the kind of lifestyle, the kind of walk that is worthy of the calling. He picks it up and begins describing that for us in verse 2 by laying down some stepping stones for a worthy walk, one that manners, a manner that honors. So let's look at that second verse. He says, be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love wow I don't know if what your opinion of that is but mine is that is a mouthful <laughs> that is a boatload full of some amazing encouraging insight and purpose as he lays down these stepping stones for us be completely humble. Humility does not mean to see yourself as a worthless, low-life, pitiful excuse of a human being. doesn't mean that. Rather, humility means to see yourself just the same way as God sees you. Isn't that, isn't that good? How do you think he sees you? I hope it's good. <laughs> Since he gave his son for you, See ourselves as God sees us with infinite and inerrant value, but with no more value than anyone else. We must not lose sight of that. It means being willing to accept God as the authority over your life rather than insisting on being your own supreme authority. It means you are willing to order your life in such a way as to serve God 
and serve others. And then he says, be gentle. Gentleness, some translations use the word meekness. Gentleness or meekness literally means power or strength under control. Being gentle or meek for a week. If you do that for a week, you will find out that requires strength. <laughs> Does not come naturally, right? You realize that it takes strength to be gentle or meek. Consider Moses. He was described as the meekest man who ever lived, yet he was a great, dynamic, strong leader who challenged the very throne of Egypt, right? His strength stood under God's control. Then we're encouraged to be patient. Patience is believing that God's timetable is actually good. We struggle with that one, right? Anybody here struggle with patience? Oh, Lord, give me patience and hurry is usually our prayer. But we all know just because we've lived long enough to realize that patience does not always come quickly. It typically is extended over a long period of time. And even that long period of time mean our lifetimes. <laughs> patience is a characteristic found in mature people. People who understand that this actually helps our understanding that it is a long-haul process. doesn't happen at the snap of a finger. But people who understand that find out that that actually helps in being patient and trusting God's timetable. Abraham received God's promises that he would have a land, right? That he would, there would be many descendants and there would be a lot of blessing. But he had to wait a really long time. Hebrews 6.15 says, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Throughout the scriptures, patience always means patience. <laughs> it doesn't mean that if I am patient now, then maybe the Lord will see that I've learned my lesson and he'll give me what I want even sooner. No, doesn't mean that. I have learned that uh, patience is waiting for God to act when and how however he chooses, right? When and where and how he ever chooses and then being okay with that. Bearing with one another in love. We actually have two stepping stones here. I've kind of put them together. Bearing or enduring is what that is referring to. That's enduring each other's stuff. And we were to do so in love. It is the willingness to put up with something or someone in a spirit of love. Obviously, agape love, unconditional love. Treating others with grace, the very grace, the very love that we have received from God. We are to extend to others. How, I mean, when you stop and think about it, I'm guilty of it as anybody. How dare us... Hold that back from others when we're receiving it from God. It's not like we're perfect, right? 
Not like every single one of them don't have our stuff, our issues, and God continues to come after us and love us and forgive us, care for us. And we're being encouraged to treat others the very same way. I like what Paul wrote in Philippians. He says, love looks not like for own, does not look out for its own interests, but for the interests of others. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, so where are these stepping stones leading us? Where do they take us? What is the purpose for this walk that we're due in a manner that honors? We'll look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So where is verse 2, the stepping stones of verse 2 taking us? Right here to verse 3. Unity in the bond of peace. So verse 3 does indeed then show us the destination. That's the goal of these deliberate steps in the Christian walk. The Holy Spirit builds unity. He leads, but we have to be willing to be led. You agree with that? Then how come you don't do it? <laughs> how come I don't? <laughs> we know it's right, but we struggle with it, don't we? But here it is. He leads, but we have to be willing to be led on the steps provided for us, as we've seen in verse 2. We do our part to keep the peace. Preserving the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace implies that we do have spiritual unity. I want you to see that. In other words, it exists. It is there. The Scripture is telling us. Unity exists. How can we know this? Because unity is in Christ. And we, therefore, are in Christ as followers of Jesus. Unity is maintained by the Spirit. Unity is preserved as believers make peace with one another. Their major priority instead of acting selfishly for personal gain and failing to get themselves out of the way. Paul knew that maintaining unity among believers would not come easy. He knows that. And that it would require continual diligence, our working at it, our doing our part at it, our remaining dependent upon God to help us in this. Unfortunately, believers face many temptations to tear apart one another and therefore tear apart the unity that he desires to exist amongst us. I like what Francis Schaeffer once said. Since we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true followers of Christ. Simply said, division is a wall that exists between sides, right? Between people. As you all mostly are, I think you're all old enough to look in the room, will remember the 1960s, this thing called the Berlin Wall. Remember that? 
It was built by the communists of East Germany to prevent East Germans from uniting with West Germans. History tells us that this was no innocent barrier. Many were killed trying to scale the wall that divided the East from the West. The wall of division separated friends from friends and family from family. The result of this division brought death, anguish, and a lot of despair. At times, it seemed that that wall would stay up forever. But God had different plans. The communist world was turned upside down as the people in communist countries were swept up in a global wave of nationalism and the desire for freedom. The Berlin Wall had no power, folks, against the forces of unity and freedom. And it fell. <laughs> Amen? Becoming prized souvenirs for collectors and nothing more. And I do want to also add, I cannot remember the man's name, but this very thing that occurred began in a small little group in a prayer meeting as one individual caught the vision of that wall coming down and unity and freedom winning the day. And it happened. Started in a prayer group. Small little prayer group. Types of Berlin walls are built every day in churches and between believers. And folks, there is no wall worth the cost of any kind of division. The only way to keep the unity of the Spirit within the church and between believers is to remain in the Spirit, to be led and to be submitted to Him. Now, just in case we're, we're still not quite getting it, I love that Paul throws in seven basic reasons for all of this. And they're found in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at those. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why should believers diligently maintain their unity as described back in verse 3? Paul answered that question right here. The words there is could also be translated because there is, connecting these verses with the previous verses that described the bonds of unity that exists, that is to exist. We must do our part to maintain the unity because Christ desires it. Can I just throw this in? Do we need any other reason? Because Christ desires it. There is only one body, we are told, one spirit. Did you notice the repetition of the word one? <laughs> you think there might be some emphasis here. <laughs> I think so. We see the emphasis on the importance of unity in Christ, our being together. Regardless of all that can divide believers, racial background, social status, 
political persuasion, to name a few Christians, belong to one body through one Holy Spirit. Now, in a pagan culture, people can choose from any number of cults to join in and false gods to worship. But for the follower of Christ, there's only one. Hallelujah, right? One body, one unified by one spirit. You see, I, I, I like what um, someone has told us. D.L. Moody that once said, Satan separates, God unites, and love binds us together. Just real quickly, uh, a few weeks back, some guys, we were in our Tuesday night group in Grand Junction, our men's group there, and before we started, a couple guys came early, and they're talking about something, and some guy mentions this thing called shoe goo. I'd never heard of it. I knew some of you would, but I'd never heard of it. And so they're talking about it. Now, it caught my interest because I have an old pair of cowboy boots that I really love. But the heel had separated from the rest of the boot. And I wasn't ready to get rid of them yet, so I still was hanging on to them. And this caught my attention, shoe goo. And the guy who's talking about it, he's an Amazon guy. He's always ordering stuff. So I said, hey, if you don't mind, get me some. I'll pay you for it. And it came. Little red tube. I put that stuff in there, put the boot on, st stood only for a few minutes. And you know what? I got my boots back. <laughs> Stuck inseparably back together. This is what God is saying to us. Our Holy Spirit, our one true Holy Spirit, and I do not mean disrespect, is our shuku <laughs> binding us together. So that nothing can separate us. Amen? Nothing. I like that. I want you to notice something here. How verses 4 through 6 explain the unity of the believers and relating it to the Holy Trinity. Wow. Check this out. Spirit in verse 4. The Son in verse 5 and the Father in verse 6. Because of the Trinity, we can enjoy the blessings of one hope, yes. one faith, yes. one baptism. Believers have a common privilege, a common calling, and a common hope. Is that three? Yeah. And unlike the world's wishful thinking kind of hope, our hope is solid yeah. and it is sure yeah. because it rests on the sure foundation that is actually who is Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah. our Lord and yeah. Savior, our rock, yeah. our Redeemer who happens to live. Yeah. I like that verse 6 reminds us that there are not many gods, but only one. One God, the Father, the sovereign God who was completely in control of all his creation. That's good news, isn't it? 
He's letting us know that God is over all and through all and in all. And I want to make sure that no one walks out of here thinking, oh, then Paul must be teaching this thing that's known as pantheism. And he's not. And if you're not sure what pantheism is, that is the the idea that God is in everything, this, this piece, this pulpit thing here, that chair, those trees outside, so that we can go and worship in nature and bow before a tree and call it God. And that is not what he is saying, not even close. Rather, he taught about the omnipotent, the omnipresent, and the omniscient God, our God, ruling over creation and exercising his power through his followers through us, folks, on behalf of his church, which we are. Amen. As you know, muscular dystrophy is a terrible disease. The person with MD, as I understand it, has all of the right parts and the equipment available, brain, cells, neurons, muscles, and so forth, but they don't work properly, and that's the problem. See, the problem is, is not the brain. The brain sends the appropriate signals. The problem lies between the nerve and the muscles. The nerve conveys the brain's message, such as turn, move, lift, etc., but the muscle does not respond. The body is essentially non-responsive to the brain's commands. Verses 4 through 6 states that there was one body, that there was one Lord over that body and that one Lord being Jesus. And so what happens when we don't obey his commands? What happens when we do not follow his lead? What happens when we remain unresponsive to him? We end up with a sick body. How healthy of a part of the body of Christ are you? Am I? Pray and ask God for help so that you can be all about the well-being in the church by being a responsive, obedient servant that is building up and not tearing down. On July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. How many remember that? And he became, because of that, he became the main focus of attention on the entire planet. Even today, his name is most associated with that moon voyage, isn't it? However, the Apollo expedition succeeded because of a large and committed team of individuals who sacrificed day and night for many years to make that project happen. Neil Armstrong, who passed away back in 2012, was only one of 218,000 people involved with that moon voyage. Now, he may have gotten most of the recognition, but he would have been the first to tell you that it was a team effort. That's the way it is in every area of life, folks. Life is a team sport, if you will. 
It's the same with God's church. Church is a team sport, if you will. And God intends that we work together to do the work he has called every single one of us to do. God wants us to know that what is good for everyone, what he has called good, what he has deemed good for everyone means it is good for you. <laughs> Not them, for you as well. Paul told us back in verse 2 to be humble, to be gentle and patient. That means having an attitude that says the team is more important than me. An attitude that says my job is to encourage others. An attitude that says I will serve and I will do my part. At the end of their first date, a young man takes the girl back to her home feeling really brave. He boldly decides to try for that important first kiss. So with an air of confidence, he, he leans with his hand on the wall, leans into her and, and just says, how about a goodnight kiss? She's embarrassed, kind of flushing even. And she replies, oh, I couldn't do that. My parents might see us. Oh, come on. Who's going to see us at this hour? No, please, I would just die of embarrassment if they caught us kissing. Oh, come on, there's nobody around. They're all asleep by now. Please, no, please, no. I really like you, please. No, I like you too, but no. <laughs> please, no, please, no. And then all of a sudden, the porch light comes on. And it's the girl's sister in her pajamas. Her hair's all messed up. And she says, Dad says, just go ahead and kiss him. <laughs> and if need be, I will. And if necessary, he'll come down and he'll do it. <laughs> but just tell him to take his hand off of the intercom button. <laughs> It was a team effort. <laughs> it was Benjamin Franklin who once said, we must all hang together or we shall all hang separately. <laughs> and Paul says right here, we must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning. And hopefully every person in there, every heart has been encouraged and spoken to with regards to you claim because we are followers of yours that we are children of God. And now you're asking us to live like it, to be one. May we take that to heart. May we realize that what has been said today isn't for them, that it is for us individually.
And may we also take to heart the, the question is, are we a healthy part of the body of Christ? Not non-responsive, but responsive. Not disobedient, but obedient. Not doing our own thing, but serving and making you first and the body of Christ important and first as well. Getting ourselves out of the way. This is what you call us to, Lord. And so I pray that we would take you upon it and realize that you're not even asking us to do this on our own. You have put within us your spirit to lead us and to guide us and to empower us to display you, your love, your grace, your mercy, all those things that we so freely receive from you. May they pass through us and get on to others. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and faithfulness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I